Turn to John chapter 2. I'll comment very little. I just want to read some of the things that we have learned in John and things that we're going to learn today and in coming Sundays from John 6. There's all kinds of believers. There's all kinds of believers. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, they say. All kinds of them. But most are not believers in the sight of God or His Son, Jesus Christ. John chapter 2, the last three verses. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, Now when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in His name when they saw the miracles which He did. But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them because He knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. These unbelievers are called believers. They're just like the seekers in John 6. They believed on Jesus because of His miracles. But His miracles did not direct them to a Savior and the Son of God. His miracles directed them to think of the easy life of having social health provided for in all of His healing miracles and a buffet to be spread every day for their bellies. Notice, they're called believers. They believed, but they didn't believe what counts. And that is that Jesus is the Son of God and has a right to your life. And you should willingly give Him every part of your life. And you should embrace Him with passion and pursue Him with zeal and obedience. John chapter 3 and the last verse. We need to come to terms with the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves. Lest we be hypocrites as we take John 6 and blast other errors that are dealt with in that chapter. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It was never removed, never taken away. It still abides there. There are some believers that are the unbelievers in this passage. It's the majority of those that call themselves Christians. We want to be the true believers that believe in sincerity and fruitfulness. So this verse applies to us in the first half. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Those thousands in John 6 did not have everlasting life. He plainly tells them that. We must not be like that. Let's examine ourselves first and then press the rest of our church toward true faith, true love, passionate service of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 5. I want to read verses 20 through 23 where Jesus exalts Himself while on trial for His life as to the position that the Father gave Him and the affection the Father has for Him and what we do to the Father when we neglect His Son. Verse 20, John 5. For the Father 
loveth the Son, that should mean much to you. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. Almighty God has put all authority and judgment, the power of giving or withholding physical life or eternal life, into the hands of Jesus Christ, so that men would honor him like they honor God. God loves his son, and we better keep that in mind, because God will defend the soul of his darling against his enemies. And we become his enemies when we befriend the world, and we love the things of this life, rather than the Lord Jesus Christ, his precious son that he sent to be our Lord and Savior. Let's honor the Son by singing a couple more songs to Him and about Him. If we come sincerely, He comes with blessings and riches, spiritual in nature, untold, to change our lives and bless us with a divine fullness and be partakers of the divine nature. If we are insincere and are here for other reasons, He will not commit himself to us, as we read in John chapter 2. Let's turn to John 6 now, the chapter before us today, and look at some of the passages there. Hopefully, by your reading last night, you are familiar with this chapter if you were not before. John chapter 6, our primary purpose being to examine ourselves to see whether we be true believers or not. John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Then those men, the 5,000 plus women and children, then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. He left them. He would not commit himself to them. These were false believers. They could talk about the truth. They could identify Bible prophecies. They could see that Jesus Christ had miraculous, supernatural power from heaven, but it was not enough. They did not believe on him like the apostles did, knowing that he was their only hope of everlasting life and being willing to give their lives to him. Look at verses 26 through 29. They continued to chase Jesus, to pursue him, to seek him, to form a megachurch on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Here's how Jesus preached to them. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, 
Verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. The work, not the works of Moses, not the works of citizenship that Moses required to get the free bread for 40 years in the wilderness. The work here is a spiritual work of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving him as the sustenance for our souls and the only hope of everlasting life. Jesus condemned them. He identified their hearts because he can perceive And he knows all the thoughts and intents of your heart and my heart this morning. And so we want to examine ourselves and purify our hearts. We can purify our hearts by blowing out every false diversion and distraction that keeps us from loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Verse 44. I'm going to read through 45. We just sang, Jesus, I come. And I hope that you meant that prayer. I hope that you thought about the words associated with it. We cannot come in a believing, sincere way without the work of grace described in these two verses. Thanks be to God for this work. May we fulfill it by coming to Him in sincerity, in passionate zeal. Jesus said, verse 44, No man can come to me. Except the Father which hath sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. God does a teaching ministry inside us that I can't do and you can't do. It's a teaching ministry inside us that involves the giving of eternal life and spiritual life, and writing His law and His commandments in our hearts and in our minds, and directing us to Christ, and then moving us toward Him by opening our hearts like He opened the heart of Lydia. And no man will come to Christ in the way that we're describing without His grace. Thanks be to God for such a blessing. Because of us rebel sinners, we would never come to Him without His powerful help. Look at verse 53. Here's our Lord's spiritual metaphor that is missed by the vast majority of those that call themselves Christians. They wanted food. They wanted meat. They wanted bread. Jesus used their carnal desires as his metaphors to punish them for John chapter 6. Because the words that he spoke to them were spiritual and they were based in eternal life. As verse 63 tells us, They did not get the spiritual metaphor. I hope that you do. 53 through 56. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, 
ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. We eat flesh and we drink beverages to sustain our natural lives. This is spiritual food for everlasting life and to be raised up in the last day. It is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in a passionate, sacrificial, submissive, repentant way is to eat his flesh and to drink his blood. It is to embrace him as the only Savior possible for you from your sins and the gift of eternal life. This kind of preaching, spiritual preaching, this kind of preaching, harsh and hard preaching, when I say this kind of preaching, I mean the preaching of Jesus in John 6 has these results. Verses 66 through 69. From that time, many of his disciples went back. His what? His disciples. They pretended to be followers of Jesus. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Amen and amen. Preaching Jesus Christ plainly harshly, obscurely at times, does something. It is a savour of life unto life. And it was a savour of life unto life in the eleven, as Peter here declares. And it is a savour of death unto death in the many that turned and went away to follow with Jesus no more. What are you and what am I? What kind of a believer... What does the preaching of Jesus Christ do to us? The singing of Jesus Christ. Are you hearing these words pronounced in your ears from one another as we speak and teach and sing and admonish one another about the Lord Jesus? Purify your hearts. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Know ye not that Christ is in you except ye be reprobates? That's the way Paul talked to his churches. I'm not going to talk any other way. I don't care what anyone wants me to talk like in the pulpit. None of them know the burden of the responsibility. None of them know the Word of God, or they wouldn't have a different thought. The Word of God is, if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The Word of God is, you do not seek me because you love me as your Savior and want to submit and obey me as your Lord. You want me to feed you. You want me to bless you on your job. You want me to keep your family together. You want these other carnal pretenses for following me. 
Brethren, let's examine ourselves that we love the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would run to him, that we would hike 75 miles north from Jerusalem to the shores of the Sea of Galilee to fall at his feet, to stand and watch him multiply the loaves and the fishes and to say, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Let's eat him today by embracing him and believing on him. It is, it is contrary to our flesh. It is contrary to the world. It is contrary to the rest of Christianity. We stand among a very few, a very small remnant in the world today that wants to be the true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ for no other reason, for no movement by amplified music, for no movement by social connection and advancement, by friends and peers in some church. We're here because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we want to love him more. So let's sing. A couple more songs. Join me in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. A wonderful chapter of 71 verses. Poorly taught, worldwide, poorly understood by most. But such a blast against easy believism. Such a blast against seeker-sensitive church growth gurus and their plans for churches. Wonderful chapter. Wonderful chapter. We depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ for the strength to love him as we should, but he has given us the energy in our souls in a new man, whereby we can choose to purify our hearts, casting away, cleansing our hands from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit to pursue him more perfectly. And so we come into the house of the Lord for reminders to love his son better. The Lord has led us to John 6. The Lord wrote John 6. I didn't plan John 6 for today. The Lord planned John 6 for today. Do I try to make things and bend things around John, the Lord's plan for John 6 for us today? Most definitely. Because I trust his plan. I trust his words. And I want us, I want you to enjoy and learn, be convicted and moved by the sixth chapter of John. Will you take a hike with me out of Jerusalem and let us hike 70 to 85 miles north? It'll take us 70 miles through rough terrain, making our way through or around Samaria to get to the Sea of Galilee. And if we want to get all the way to the city of Capernaum on the north side of that sea, it'll take us another 15 miles. If we keep up the pace of four miles per hour, which is a decent walking pace, it's going to take us 20 hours of walking to get there. The Lord Jesus Christ went back and forth between Galilee and Jerusalem many times. I want to take a hike with you. Yes, I'm serious about today, but I want to take a hike with you to the shores of the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, And there see the Lord Jesus Christ as John chapter 6 unveils him to us. Far better than hiking. We can read, study, consider, and hear preached the full eyewitness account of the Apostle John and the inspired perception that Jesus had of his audience and exactly what he said to them. We get it all right here 
in these 71 verses. This chapter of John 6 stands separate from chapters 5 and 7 with the Lord's related teachings in them. Chapter 5 was in Jerusalem. Remember? He was on trial in the streets of Jerusalem for healing the impotent man. Chapter 7, Jesus is going to be back in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And it tells us so in the first verses of chapter 7, where it says, after these things. And chapter 6 begins with, after these things. So chapter 6 is a separate, literal chapter in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forget the chapters in your Bible. They're not very old. I'm talking about a chapter in the life of Jesus Christ. We have an an entire chapter, John 6, is a couple of events, two or three miracles, depending on how you look at them. Jesus feeding the 5,000, Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and then the doctrine around those events, all packed together in this one chapter. When the jump from chapter 5 to chapter 7 is quite a bit of time. And this is what John gives us. One event. You know, when you read about the feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're just told that he fed the 5,000, they gathered up the remnants, and he sent the people home. Bye-bye. That's all you're told. You ought to read the Word of God carefully and wonder what else took place. Well, John tells us what else took place. John 6 is what else took place with those 10,000 people before they got to go home. And then they went home on their own accord because they didn't want to hear what he had to say to them. Our goal is to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, to see him in his glory, in his beauty, in his doctrine, his truth, to believe on him, to love him, and to obey him, and to learn his doctrine and his ways better and better. Never forget what we learned in chapter 5 that Jesus is the giver of life or the restrainer of life. And Jesus is the judge of all men. And we shall stand before him in the resurrection, either the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. Eternal life or eternal damnation is the great difference that is going to be made very shortly in the eternal lives, the eternal existences of all men. And it is coming. And Jesus declared it to his enemies in chapter 5. Chapter 6 tells us the necessity of coming to him and believing on him in order to have eternal life, to show that we have it, to lay hold of it for our own assurance and confidence that we might be raised up again to the resurrection of life in the last day. In reading and rereading, and rereading again this chapter, and I have known this chapter for some decades. There are at least eight larger lessons, and I shared them with you last evening. I may have shared too much with you last evening. My purpose was a short preparation. My wife took one look at it and said, short? I limited it to one chapter, but it was 71 verses long, and once I got, I couldn't stop. I was like Elihu when I started writing a few sentences about John 6 because it's so powerful, weighty, personal, and practical. But there's about eight larger lessons in it that we want to see and learn from this chapter and embraces the truth. The first one, and I gave you these last evening, but the review will not hurt you at all. 
When you look at a chapter, you want to beg the Lord, Lord, open thou mine eyes. Only God knows, and my wife a little, how much I've asked that for John 6. Even though I could have preached it to you standing upside down. Because I've preached it before. But I want the themes and the lessons in John 6 that the Holy Spirit wants for us. And I don't want to come short, and I don't want to put anything there that doesn't belong there. The emphasis that we want to make is, have you, have I, come to Jesus Christ the right way and for the right reasons to lay hold of eternal life? Not any way will work, as you can tell. There's thousands of seekers here that are rejected by Jesus Christ and they turn away from Jesus Christ because they were not sincere believers. Remember the Bible. Does the Bible tell us that there are widows and there are widows indeed? Is there a difference between a widow and a widow indeed? Huge difference. And the list of differences is given in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 14. Is there a difference between disciples and disciples indeed? Oh, yes. We are told about disciples indeed in John chapter 8. If ye continue, if ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Because we're going to have in verse 66, disciples departing from Jesus Christ, yet they're called disciples, but they weren't really disciples in the context of, of God and Christ's opinion of them. Just like a widow that doesn't meet the qualifications in 1 Timothy 5 is not a widow for the consideration of the church in their financial matters. And there are believers, and there are believers indeed. Let us be the believers indeed is our first lesson that we want to get because Jesus is going to be pressing, pressing, believing on him, not for a food buffet every day, Believing on him, not to get their sick or dead relatives healed or raised from the dead, but as the Savior from sin and the Lord of glory. There's another, that's the first lesson that we want to get. And by God's direction, that's what I emphasize and want to emphasize. The second lesson we want to see is that there are belly worshipers just like the Apostle Paul taught us in Romans 16 and Philippians chapter 3. There are belly worshipers that live for carnal comfort and gain in spite of any effort to exalt spiritual things. No matter how repetitive Jesus was in trying to promote spiritual things and eternal life, all they could think about was their belly. And when they realized that there wasn't going to be a food buffet every day, they left. And it's so true with most who hear the gospel. Because the natural mind, the natural man considers the spiritual things of God to be foolishness and will not submit himself to them. So we want to realize that John 6 teaches about belly worshipers. Literally, Jesus said in verse 26, you following me, you're seeking me because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. You got something for your belly. We don't want anything for our belly. I told the Lord, before today. I've told him before and you've told him before, some of you with me. Lord, take away everything we have. 
We're still going to love the Lord Jesus Christ, your son. We're still going to trust in him for everything of lasting value. And that's eternal glory in heaven. Number three, without God electing to eternal life and a prior work of grace, there cannot be true faith. I was taught as a child and memorized as a child, a single-digit child, John 6, 37b. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. That's how I was taught, John 6, 37. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. But look at that verse. It says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. You folks aren't coming to me because the Father didn't give you to me. I'm here in this world to do one thing, to lay down my life for those the Father gave me. By the way, in case you didn't understand me, you're not part of that. And the only way that those that the Father gave me will come to me is when He draws them to come to me. He's got to teach them from the inside out before they will come to me. And brethren, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, if you want to take a hike to the Sea of Galilee, if you want to study and learn and submit to John chapter 6, thank God! Because not only did He give you to the Lord Jesus Christ, but He drew you to Him. Or we would have no interest in Him. You would want me to tell you some stories about the Manning Award that was won by Deshaun Watson for the second successive year in a row, or the Bowden Award that I, pers- that I participated in in a live premiere in Ch- Charleston this past couple of weeks that was also given to Deshaun Watson as the finest Christian student athlete in America. And blah, you know, we could just talk about all kinds of current events And we could talk about Deshaun Watson being a Christian and Dabo Sweeney being a Christian and blah, blah, blah. And we could all go home feeling fat and happy. But that is not what Jesus did. He didn't go around pounding people on the back and say, wasn't that the best filet of fish you've ever had? He said, let me away from these people and get into a mountain. And if I've got to walk across the Sea of Galilee to get there or to get back, I'm willing to do it to get away from these people. They want to make me a king so I can be their vending machine. It's unbelievable. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you don't learn all that about this particular miracle. But you read John, and we get this whole 71 verses packed around this miracle of feeding the 5,000. So without God electing to eternal life, we have 644, no man can come to me. And in case they missed it, Jesus repeats it in 65. Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me, except it were given unto him of my father. From that time, they turned and went away because God had not given it to them to come to Christ. I remember, I remember learning this chapter 40 years ago. And not only is it in verse 44, and I'm saying this so that some of you will know how to use John 6 in sharing the truth of the gospel with others, it's in verse 65 as well. Jesus refers to what he said in verse 44 by repeating himself because it's an explanation as to why his large church didn't want to be Christian. Though they called themselves the first Christian church of Galilee. 
because they wanted to make Jesus king. There's never been a praise band like this praise band. Hillsong was put in the shade by the singers that wanted to make Jesus king. If you read this chapter with understanding and see that they took shipping to chase Jesus, they waited up all night to make sure that no one else had come down to that little port because they didn't want to miss Jesus. They pursued him all the way into Capernaum. They told him that they believed his miracles. They were moved by him. They asked him, what must we do to work the works of God? They were intense. They were aggressive. They were bold. They were forceful. Forceful makes a great rock band. Don't you understand that? This praise band was unprecedented. And it hasn't been followed since. And Jesus rejected it all. There's going to be so many sermons preached today with little platitudes in them about how you can prosper in life and you can be a champion. God wants all of you to be champions. No, God wants his son to be champion and he's made him champion and he is a champion and he's defeated all his enemies and he's about to show it to the universe and I love my champion. I don't care what he does with me. He can glorify himself through me and do it any way that he chooses. But he's my champion. He's my hero and he's my star. He's the bright morning star. Number four of lessons or themes of this chapter. The third one was God's electing grace and the prior work of grace before anyone will ever believe. Number four is the market objectives and the methods of seeker-sensitive megachurch gurus like Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, Bill Hybels, and others are unscriptural. Jesus didn't do anything like that. Jesus was not seeker-sensitive. More on that in a moment. Jesus was insensitive to seekers. Brethren, there's so many problems with the seeker-sensitive movement, they don't even know how to define words. What they mean by a seeker is a person that hates going to church. That's what they mean by a seeker. They are called the unchurched ones that sit at home and sleep in on Sunday and watch TV and don't want to go to church because it's boring. That is what they call a seeker. The reason they call them a seeker is that there's a latent seeking inside them that they can bring forth by offering a church that pleases them. So they alter church worship in order to get people that hate church to come to church. They no longer call it a church. You notice that, don't you? They no longer call it a church, and they certainly don't want to call it a Baptist church. And it's because if they turn the music up loud enough and they let you dress casual enough and they have good enough Starbucks there and they have little small groups for Harley riders and they'll let you get tattooed in Jesus in a back room, they'll all come. And all of a sudden, look at all these seekers we have here. Well, there were real seekers here around the Sea of Galilee. They weren't brought here by the loud music. They weren't brought here by tattoos. They weren't brought here by little sermonettes that are blasphemous and heretical in their content and form of presentation. They were seekers because they saw the supernatural power of Jesus Christ performing miracles. First healing, then multiplying the loaves and fishes. And that was not good enough. Oh Lord, help us. The market objectives. Churches today pick their market niche. They do market surveys. It's all based on social studies and find out how they're going to reach the masses to make them feel comfortable in their church. And so they alter it greatly. They have smoke, light shows, crashing music, 
crazy events, anything to make everyone feel comfortable like they're at a nightclub, like they're at a pep rally for a sports team, instead of being in the house of God, where the Bible tells us in the New Testament that our worship is to be reverent and with godly fear in order to be acceptable to Him because our God is a consuming fire. Number five, many talk about Jesus. Many talk about Jesus. But it is another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. Paul told us so in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, and that other Jesus, and that other spirit, and that other gospel are from the devil himself. They're not missing the boat by a little bit. They're missing the boat by a lot. They're from the devil himself. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that. The name of Jesus doesn't mean anything to him, and it shouldn't mean anything to us. It's a life lived in obedience to Jesus. And that life should be lived with zealous, sacrificial, passionate purpose. Lord! Lord! It's not going to mean anything to him. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ will say to the vast majority that use his name. Do you want to check the numbers out here? How many do we have to start with when Jesus opened the doors to the first church of the Galilees? 10, 15,000? How many did he have when he got done? About 11, 12, and one of them was a devil? Right. Why? Because they didn't like him once they met him and found out what Jesus was like, and they didn't like what he wanted from their lives. So they left and went away. Nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants to be a Christian, except a few nutcases that don't even have their wires in a wire nut upstairs. Everybody knows that there is something after life. They do not want eternal torment. So they want to be a Christian. Nobody wants to go to hell. They'll believe on Jesus. Just give them a good meal, turn the light show on, crank the rock and roll music up. They'll come forward in the droves because their buddies are. They'll get down front. They'll punch each other's biceps. They'll invite Jesus into their heart, and they'll all go to hell. Because if that pastor were ever to get up in that pulpit and preach the word of God and its demands on their lives, that crowd would be thinned so greatly and so quickly. I hope that you read one of the little links that I sent you this past week in the Friday update sent to me by our brother Tim in St. Louis of Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. If you were to have read that, and it wasn't long, but it was informative of the state of things in Baptist churches in America. How do you get to the place where you as a church will vote to have a married lesbian couple be your co-pastors? What has happened? John 6 was not preached the right way. And so you start down the road of another Jesus. And Jesus is kind. Jesus would never offend anyone. 
Listen, in John 6, Jesus offended everyone. And he offended everyone repeatedly. And I don't want to make that our hobby horse. We want to love the Lord Jesus Christ for what he is and fall at his feet and knowing, as we're going to sing in just a few minutes, pass me not, O gentle Savior. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is gentle to those that love him. But he is a preacher you don't want to sit in the audience when you are there for false reasons. That lesbian couple, how does that happen? Things like that didn't happen when I was a little boy. It has happened in our lifetimes. That couple is from Greenville, South Carolina. The buckle of the Bible belt. One was a chaplain at GHS. The other was a chaplain at Furman. They were both ordained by the First Baptist Church of Greenville. One was a co-pastor, an associate pastor, of the Greenville Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Do you even have any comprehension of those doctrines? Unitarian. We hate the Trinity and reject it. That's why you understand that word, don't you? Unitarian instead of Trinitarian. Tri. Tricycle means how many wheels? Three. Trinitarian means three persons in one Godhead. Unitarian. There's only one. Universalist. Everybody gets saved and goes to heaven. Listen, I'd preach universalism if I could. You'd love it if I could preach universalism. But it's not the truth. So we're not going to preach it. How do things fall apart so much that Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. would go that far down the tubes to that abominable perversion that they've invited upon themselves? Because we, we fail in holding strictly to what the Bible presents about Jesus Christ and his doctrine. Right. And it's in John 6. That was number five. Number six, the lessons or themes we want to get. Do you understand and accept that preaching as Jesus preached can be hard, can be harsh, can be offensive, can be obscure, can be so spiritual that many people aren't going to get it. That's the way Jesus preached. That's the way we want to preach. Number seven, the Roman Catholic heresy of transubstantiation in their mass. The Roman Catholics believe that that little sun wafer that you put on your tongue and dissolves, called their mass, called the host, the cracker god that they worship, they get their doctrine largely out of John 6, along with 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul said, quoting Jesus in the Lord's Supper, this is my body. They take it literally. They go into John 6 and take these words literally, except a man eat my flesh and drink my blood. They believe in their little cracker is the full body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Out of this chapter... So it's one of the lessons that we will cover. Communion isn't even referenced, not even loosely, in John 6. The eating and drinking Christ is not what we do at the communion table. It's what we want to be doing right now by believing on Him as the Son of God, the Savior from sin, and the coming Lord of the universe. Number eight, there can be spiritual application to words in the Bible that we cannot minimize or overlook. 
Let us always be looking for the spiritual sense of words. If there might possibly be a spiritual sense, we ought to put on them. Because that's the error that is made in John 6, as Jesus took their idea of bread and transferred it to referring to himself as the sustaining nutrition for eternal life for God's elect. It's a spiritual book we're reading, so we want to be careful with it. Brethren, we can make a strategic mistake, and I shared this with you last evening. I can make a strategic mistake, and I've seen it made many times. I've made it in my past by emphasizing any one of these lessons out of proportion to the others. Arminians stress believing on Jesus. See, all that mattered to them was John 6, 37b. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. See, they didn't like that first clause, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. You understand? So Arminians go into this chapter, and they come out with how easy and comforting Jesus is to get people to believe on him. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. And bye-bye to John 6. Holiness, folks, stress the belly worship that's evident in this chapter and the carnal aspect of seekers and, and end up being negative coming out of John 6. And we don't want to be negative. We want to be positive and embrace our Savior. Primitive Baptists and and those like them stress the doctrine of electing grace that's only here in a few verses from 37 to 44 primarily. And they understate the role of faith because they've got so many unconverted elect. New Calvinists stress the errors and heresies of seeker-sensitive gurus to understate the importance of faith. Separatists of a strict kind stress the true Jesus Christ against fakes and they understate the role of faith. I want to emphasize the role of faith. We want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be true believers, believers indeed, disciples indeed, like Peter was. How did Peter back up his words? We believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. How did Peter back it up? He gave the rest of his life in service to his master. And he suffered from what we know from history and tradition. He suffered crucifixion upside down because he wouldn't be crucified like his Lord. What are you doing to show that you're a true believer? It's evident. There's seekers in here. We want to get rid of them. We're going to pray to get rid of them in the second service. There's only a few that remain that truly love Jesus Christ and want to live for him and will sacrifice anything, will passionately participate in every opportunity that love him, that love his holiness and love his righteousness and do not get distracted by all the little soap bubbles of this life. And the soap bubbles might be dear to you, but they're not dear to God. What's dear to God is his dear son. Apologists might stress the hardness and harshness of his preaching, but they end up stressing that and they understate faith. Protestant reformers or some Baptists could take this chapter and blast against Catholics and miss the importance of us coming to Christ. Hermeneutists, or those who love the hermeneutics, or spiritualists can so stress the Lord's metaphors to miss the real, literal, now role of faith. And that's what we want. We want to keep all eight lessons in balance pointing us to faith in Christ against our flesh. Let's run. 
with eager hearts and minds to see Jesus and to hear him and to embrace him and to say with Isaiah, Lord, here am I, send me. To say with Saul of Tarsus, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Throw away everything else. Yes, you've got to go to work. Yes, you've got to stay married. Yes, you still have children. But they should not be creeping into your love of Christ and your service to Him and your devotion to Him and your passion for Him and your passion for His people. Like the apostles who give us a great example. I remember 40 years ago hearing that Romans 9 was the great sifter. Romans 9 is only a great sifter to someone who's infatuated with the sovereignty of God in election and predestinating grace. You'll say, don't you love those doctrines? Oh, yes, I do love them. But I love something more than that. The devils love that same doctrine, know it, believe it, and tremble at it. I want to love the Jesus of John 6. I don't want to be in love with the truth some body of knowledge out here, no matter how true it is or how scriptural it is, I want to be in love with the object of that truth, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. These people loved the truth. Of a truth! Of a truth! This food vending machine is the prophet that the Bible prophesied. They knew the truth. When someone says to me, I ask someone, how is so-and-so doing? How's their soul? Will they still believe the truth? Oh, well, good. They've climbed the corporate ladder all the way up to a devil. Because the devil believes the truth and trembles. You know what they mean by truth? Election and regeneration before faith. So what? These people believed Deuteronomy 18, 13 through 19... They believe that Jesus fulfilled it. They believe that his miracles were, the, were by the power of heaven and that he could take care of them for the rest of their lives. And Jesus drove them away. I'll tell you, John 6 is a sifter. Amen. Let's all learn what we can from this passage and most of all examine our faith. Due to the fact that we live in perilous times of the last days, we need to blast megachurch compromisers. There weren't megachurches when I was growing up. If a church was mega, it was just large because it was a prosperous church that preached the gospel or some close variation of the gospel. We could call Charles Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. Right. He, was, he was a five-point moderate Calvinist, didn't have musical instruments, smoked a cigar or two every day, drank a glass of wine every day. When he was confronted as to why the papers in London ran advertisements, about him smoking cigars as not being a very good Christian example, he said, you can condemn me for smoking too much when you catch me smoking two at a time. I just thought I'd throw that in to keep you a little light at the moment. That's a mega church because it had 10,000 people that would cram in there on Sundays to hear him preach a Bible message. But we live in a time where... Starting with Robert Schuller, he wasn't the first to articulate it, but the ones that come before him, you wouldn't recognize their names. Robert Schuller, then Bill Hybels in Chicago, then Rick Warren in Orange County, California, and then Joel Osteen down there in Houston, 
have come up with seeker-sensitive. Seeker-sensitive, I've told you what it means. A seeker is a person who doesn't want to go to church because traditional church is boring. So we've got to change traditional church so that people that don't like church will want to come to it. What didn't they like about traditional church? Singing. Boring old doctrinal hymns and having doctrine preached. Did the Bible warn us about seeker-sensitive times when the Bible said the time will come when they will not endure, when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers like these guys having itching ears. They want the lusts of their flesh scratched by an entertaining, dramatic presentation with smoke, strobes, lights, junk, garbage, and ridiculous little Bible blasphemous sermons. Andrew Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley still preaches the Bible, and he wears a suit, and his congregation wears suits because they're still trying to do things in a formal, reverent way. We have no obsession about clothes. We just look at it as one little measure that we can take that is taught in the Bible twice about dressing up to be in the presence of God to make it more formal, sober, reverent. His son went off and has gone nuts. Has a big mega church in Atlanta where he makes fun of people holding to the Bible and biblical accounts of like the flood and so forth. It's a, if you've, I've mentioned it once before, but if you were to go do a little bit of reading and research about it, that's how you get people to flock in. You don't hammer them with the Bible. They never use words like repentance or justification because those things are unnecessary. Let's just all have fun and prosper, and God wants you to be a champion. And if I could grin like Joel Osteen, I would do it for you right now, but I don't even know how to do that. And he does it the entire time. My whole face would be in pain, cramped up and ruined if I tried to look like him. You say you've turned John 6 into a blast against Joel Osteen. Correct. You're perceptive because that's, what, that's one big part of John 6. Seeker-sensitive. Sensitive means that we want to recognize their felt needs. This is their expression. Felt needs. We want to know what they feel good about, and we want to provide it. What did Jesus do? They had some felt needs. They wanted to be stroked, comforted, and and him to accept the crown and become their king and feed them every day. They wanted to go out every morning like going for the milkman in the milk crate, which most of you don't even know what I'm talking about, and have food there every morning, filet of fish from the golden arches, but better from the Lord Jesus Christ. Seeker-sensitive churches adjust their content and their activities to satisfy the felt needs of reprobates. And it's going on around us intensely. They do not go to the Bible as their manual. They go to Rick Warren as their guru. They go to Bill Hybels as their guru. They go to Joel Ost. Well, nobody goes to him as a guru because other than his little 20-minute memorized, oh, what do we call it? He doesn't know very much. <clears throat> Just go online and look at the times he's appeared on Larry King Live or Oprah or other shows and had to answer questions without being able to memorize the answer. But he can smile. 
And he's got a wife that can preach. Victoria, she can unload. The foolish goal is to do whatever it takes to get church rejectors to come to their church. Attire is changed, music is changed, instrumentation is blown up, amplification, drama, chats, videos, events are continuously modified for worldly appear, appeal to see which church can do better than the other one to keep their membership growing and to encroach on the other. You know, Stephen Furtick in Charlotte's one of my favorites if we're talking about favorites, an Elevation Church, and Perry Noble locally was, and Ron Carpenter, the apostle at World Redemption Center, it gets to be added to this list of names I've already given. It's seeker-sensitive religion, and John chapter 6 undoes it. And see, once you, once you leave the Word of God, and it is no longer the anchor and the parameters and the limiters on what we believe and what we do, you end up Calvary Baptist in Washington, D.C. Because what will keep you from ending up there? Because the world is telling you, and our government is telling you, that that is good. So what will keep you back? Only the Word of God can keep you back, which means we can't compromise the Word of God at all at any point or turn. We want to do it just the Bible way. If it's boring, the people of God that are born of God, taught of God, drawn by God, will believe on Jesus Christ in spite of the boringness that you think is here. And that excitement that is elsewhere is not the excitement of the Holy Spirit. It's not the excitement of the true Jesus Christ. It's not the excitement of God. It's the excitement of the devil and his spirit. Paul said so. We're going to preach Christ and him crucified. We're going to dumb the message down to just lay him on the table. The Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to take hikes to the Sea of Galilee and leave it there with what God has done in your hearts to believe on the Son of God. A problem for this heresy is the simple Bible truth. Who seeks whom? They call them seekers. Romans 3 says, there is none that seeketh after God. In fact, it says, I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. The real seeker is Jesus Christ, and he came after us. Another problem is the Bible's strict standards that I just quoted to you. What is the cure for this church dilemma? Paul described a church dilemma. For the time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and shall turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. What's the cure? Three words. Preach the word. We don't tell stories. We don't amp up the music. We don't have programs. We preach the word. If you have been born again and drawn by God to Jesus Christ, you love John 6 just reading it, let alone thinking about it, let alone hearing it preached and delighting in the lessons that are contained in it. I hope that you can look at the chapter right now and let me remind you of the outline. The first 25 verses are audience and miracles. The next 40 verses are Christ's doctrine. And the last six verses are the results in smaller pieces. Verses 1 through 4, the audience and the setting. Just look at it. Get, get comfort. We want, I want you to get your mental arms around it a little bit. 
Verses 5 through 14 is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Verses 15 through 21 is the miracle of walking on water. Though it's not stated as clearly as in other gospel accounts. Verses 22 through 25, seekers pursuing Jesus Christ, waiting up all night for him, wondering where he went and how they can find him because they're getting hungry. He fed them supper. Now it's time for breakfast. Verses 26 through 29, which I read to you a number of minutes ago, Jesus reproves their carnality. Verses 30 through 36, he explains they would not believe him. And they wouldn't believe him. Verses 37 through 45 are his sovereignty in men's faith. Verses 46 through 39, 14 verses, are his hard, metaphorical teaching based on bread and eating and flesh and drinking blood. He chose those metaphors to offend them because they didn't understand them and didn't want to understand them. They just wanted their bellies filled. And so he held the truth away from them and gave it to us. Verses 60 through 66, their rejection of him and turning away because of his hard doctrine and spiritual emphasis. And the last five verses, 67 through 71, the reception by the 12. This is John 6. We will get into it. We want to look into this chapter and ask ourselves, statistically, the probability is, I am one of those seekers. Because it was many thousands compared to just a few. So we want to examine ourselves. It's a good thing to examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith or whether you're reprobates. Reprobates creep into the church. And it's a severe warning to, to shake the elect, to examine themselves. Do I have real faith? Do I really love Jesus Christ? Am I really serving him right now? Is 2017 going to be a year sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything I do like the apostles lived? We want to ask ourselves that. We want to love the Savior that we see here. We want to see the compassion that he had for the multitude. You say, did he have compassion for those that he rejected and sent away? Yes, he does it every day with his sunshine and his rain on the evil and the good. But to see his harshness for those that want to play games with religion, there should only be one reason we're here, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God, our Savior from sin, the Lord of the universe, and he's coming back to judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Do we want, will we live for him between now and then? May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.